Good morning, everyone. If you've got a Bible with you, uh, please could you turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 11 to 16 as we continue our series on Jesus' body of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. Let's crack right into it, shall we? God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavour? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. Now, before we delve deeper into this passage, uh, I want to come clean on a couple of difficulties I find in preaching this particular passage at this particular time. Difficulty number one. When you listen to this, most likely I, Johnny Meller, will be on furlough. Just to come clean, for me today is April the 15th, 2020. Now, I don't know when it is for you because you could watch it at any sort of time. But even if you watch this at the earliest possible time, uh, I would imagine about three weeks has elapsed. Now, due to the coronavirus crisis, uh, my experience of the last three weeks would be that a lot can happen in that period of time. So I just want to apologise if I just don't mention some huge event that's happened uh, in the recent uh, history. Uh, sorry about that. It hadn't happened for me yet. OK. More than that as well, I will be making some predictions in this talk uh, that if the details of them about your situation are not quite spot on, again, apologies. So, for example, I will be assuming that lockdown is still taking place in some form uh, when you're watching this. Uh, that's not an infallible truth. Uh, that's my opinion. That's a guess. Probably quite a good guess, but we'll see, won't we? OK, so excuse me on the small details. Now, with this detail, uh, this difficulty, though, I don't think it's a major problem because one of the great things about being a Christian is that we know one whose opinions are completely unchanging and infallible, even though each of ours aren't. And I want to focus today on some things that God, who came down to earth in the person of Jesus, said, and he may have said them a long time ago. But these things I want to focus on were as true, I believe, 2000 years ago as they are as I record this video and as they will be when you're watching this video. So that difficulty should be OK. But it does bring me on to another difficulty. Difficulty number two. You may agree with what I've said so far, that uh, Jesus's words are always true at all times, but it doesn't necessarily follow that they're all as equally applicable as all, at all times as they could be at other times. I don't know, let's think of an example. Um, let's take the passage we're reading today at, well, I don't know, perhaps this precise moment in history. I, if, if, as I've guessed earlier, you are still on lockdown uh, when you are listening to this, you will be living through one of the only times in the history of our country when legally you are not allowed to mingle with other people outside of your household. Now, most of us are hidden away from others as much as we could possibly be. So when we hear an application like, let your good deeds shine before others, well, 
I'm not surprised that you think, well, that could be a tricky one to apply at this precise moment. And of course, I, I fully recognise that there'll be others listening to this who are in quite a different situation, that uh, at the moment you are more shoulder to shoulder with people outside of your household and outside of the church uh, in a work capacity than maybe you've ever been. It feels like you're working 24 hours a day, uh, maybe in the health service, maybe in another key sector in society. And for you, there might be some more normal, usual, direct application from this passage uh, today. But for most of us, that just isn't really the case. It's harder to apply this passage for many of us at this time in history in this place than it probably has ever been for people. But actually this difficulty I think is not something that we should worry about either and can really help us here because one of my main aims in today's talk is to show you that this is not just a message to file away for when this all blows over but this is actually incredibly relevant to every one of us whether we are totally isolated from everybody around us at the moment or whether we're not. In fact, I think our present position may cause us to dig more deeply into the Bible than we normally would. And what I always find with the Bible is when you dig deeper, what do you find? Uh, you find treasure. And so that's the plan. So first, let's look then at what Jesus means in this passage. And then let's look how we can apply it both now and in the future. The first thing I think we see in this passage, Jesus saying, is that as Christians, as a follower of Jesus, you are vital to the well-being of our society. Let's remember what we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount so far. Jesus, in this sermon, is talking to hurting, broken, sick people who largely are living on the margins of society. And these people are those that nobody really cares about. And he takes them off the guard, off guard from the start of this talk. And as he tells them the Beatitudes, the blessed are kind of statements that uh, start Matthew chapter five and start the Sermon on the Mount. What he's saying is he's telling them something that no one else would say. That they, though they're usually treated just like rubbish, really, are actually blessed. Theirs is the kingdom of God. They will inherit the earth. He's turning the whole thinking about themselves right on its head. It's like for some, their income and their education or lack of it or their health or lack of it would make them think that they are worthless to God. That might be the case for you as you listen to this as well. And therefore, what Jesus said to them, he would say equally to you. And he'd say, no, no, the opposite is true. That you are specially blessed by God. These guys who listened to Jesus then, they were the first to be offered entrance into the kingdom. But there's another way that Jesus wants to turn our thinking about ourselves on its head in this passage. Because as he points out, it's not just because of people's social status that they were being looked down upon. There was another reason. Actually, he points out specifically that some people are being mistreated and persecuted specifically because they follow Jesus. Remember how the passage started in verse 11. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Now, just as being disregarded by your society for your social status has a negative effect on you. So also uh, it does the same by being mocked and slandered for your Christian faith. 
having heard the Beatitudes, we've probably come to the conclusion that uh, we have value to God, that we're not worthless to him. But in a world where we're mocked and lied about and slandered all the time, we might well come to the conclusion that, yeah, whereas God values us, we are actually worthless to the world itself. I mean, if people tell you that you're of no value to them, eventually you are likely to believe them. If you're constantly told by every film you watch and every article you read and every clever person who stands up and talks about your beliefs, that your beliefs are irrelevant and unhelpful and outdated, well, it might not stop you believing those specific things, but it may very well convince you that you have nothing to offer the society who thinks that sort of stuff. But Jesus, in this passage, was speaking to people who could very much have felt like that in his day. And his words still resound to us today who could still feel like this. And once we see that context, I think we can understand much better the force of these two images he uses in verses 13 to 16. To the marginalised and the written off and the derided, he says this, you are salt and you are light. These are obviously not images that are foreign to you. I don't need to tell you what salt and light are. They aren't things that existed then but are now extinct. Uh, that's clear. These are very familiar to us. We have salt and we have lamps in our world. But while they're familiar with us, what we don't often realise is that these items had very different significance to us today than they did to people in Jesus' time. Salt and lamps, if you're anything like me, are kind of, you know, uh, added extras that we have in our lives. They are useful, but seemingly unimportant things, really, that we don't think about a whole lot. That was certainly not the case in Jesus's time or anywhere in the ancient world. Let's start with salt, shall we? My relationship with salt goes something like this. If I am cooking, which I'm finding I'm doing a little bit more of at the moment, at the end of the recipe, I will follow the recipe reasonably well because I'm rubbish at guessing myself what to put in. It usually says add some salt. So I would just sprinkle some salt on at the end um, because really I'm told that's what I got to do. And uh, I'll be honest, on certain occasions, I would forget to put salt in the recipe. And um, maybe I'm a bit strange, but I don't often notice a whole lot. OK, I do it to kind of fulfill that duty. I know you should put salt on things, but I'm really neither here nor there uh, with salt. Now. For me, it's then a pretty added extra slide. It's not very important, or I don't think it's very important. In the ancient world, salt was completely different. It was used for seasoning food, definitely like it is today, but it was used for a whole host of other things. It was used to preserve food. They didn't have freezers and fridges and stuff. Salt was helpful for that sort of stuff. It was also used as a fertilizer and a disinfectant. In Jewish religion, salt would have had the added significance of being an important part of certain ceremonial offerings. In fact, salt was so important in the ancient world that there are cases of it being used as an actual currency. Soldiers, Roman soldiers, for example, sometimes were paid in salt. And in our language today, this is being carried over. So take the word salary uh, to be paid, what you're paid for work is your salary. Where does that word come from? Well, it comes from the Latin salt, which means sal, because it was used as money. It was used as people's salary. Alongside this, uh, to add to the importance, in some uh, teaching of some Jewish rabbis, salt was used as a metaphor for wisdom itself. 
Can you see how important it is? It's what people got paid with, and it was seen so highly that it, it was wisdom. It was a good image for wisdom. Imagine a, a world without any payment for things and without any wisdom. Well, that would be like a world without salt for the ancient world. Light uh, is kind of similar as well, I think. I don't know about you, but I love it uh, when I go up on a plane and we take off at night time. Remember that? Remember we could travel on planes? You tell your grandchildren about that one, Shayla. But anyway, as I remember it, when I travel on a plane leaving from a city at night, I love to look out the window and look down on all the lights of the city uh, below me. And it says it's a beautiful sight. All of those thousands and thousands of pinpricks of light, someone's in different colours uh, and stuff like that. Let's imagine, and it's a reasonably preposterous uh, illustration, but uh, let's imagine air travel was not invented at the beginning of the 20th century, but instead in the first century. And you took off from Jerusalem Airport, a busy uh, urban metropolis of the time, at night time, and you flew over the city. You would have a very, very different view from the one we have today. In fact, you would have no view at all, because of course there would be no lights lights in the sky, but as regards man-made lights, there would be hardly any. There were no car headlamps. There were no street lights. When people went to bed, basically on the whole, the house would be cloaked completely in darkness. Man-made light was much harder to come by in those days, and therefore a lamp would have been a very important piece of kit. And don't get me wrong, my bedside lamp is very precious to me. And if the bowl breaks, I tell you what, it's an absolute pain. Do you know what I have to do if the bowl breaks on my bedside lamp? I have to get out of bed, could be cold at this point. Uh, I have to walk probably three metres and I have to turn the light off with my own finger if I, after I've read my book uh, before I go to sleep. Outrageous. Now, probably, despite my great inconvenience, <laughs> if my light broke, it would be far worse in the first century to these people Jesus was talking about. If your lamp broke or you didn't have one, it would mean that after the sun went down, you couldn't do anything at all. You'd be in completely in the dark. Without lamps, for about half the time, you would be unable to do anything. Again, do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, you guys, you people who are following me, Christians, do you understand that it's not just that you're important to me, to God. It's not just that you're important to the church, to other followers of Jesus, but you are of vital importance to the world around you. If you don't live out your calling, it'll be as bad for the world around you as if all their food rotted and they lived half their life in complete darkness. That's what he said to those people on the mountain, and he would say exactly the same thing to us today. Christians living faithfully for Jesus are not a quirky oddity that have some novelty value. We are not quaint and kind of cute. Oh, you still believe that, do you? How, how novel. I didn't think there were any of you left. No, it's, it's nothing like that. We are essential to the world around us. We are vital for the flourishing of our society. They don't know it. They won't tell us it. But that's Jesus's perspective. And I know which one that I'm going to follow. We should take great encouragement in that. Because it is encouraging. However, with that encouragement, 
There's something else we've got to know. Because as the great prophet of our age, Uncle Benjamin Parker put it, well, misquoting him slightly, I must say, with great importance comes great responsibility. Let's look a bit more at these images to show you what I mean. First of all, we saw that as followers of Jesus, we are of vital importance to our society. But also we see from what Jesus is teaching here, as followers of Jesus, we are called to be distinctive in our society. It's very difficult to tell which precise quality of salt Jesus is specifically referring to here. But one thing that it seems pretty fair to say about both salt and light is that they are meant to be distinctive. The Bible commentator R.T. France puts it like this. Disciples, if they are true to their calling, make the earth a purer and a more palatable place. But they can do so only as long as they preserve their distinctive character. Unsalty salt has no value. It may seem obvious to say this, but salt must have a distinct taste and flavour to affect the flavour of other foods, mustn't it? And even more so with light. Light has to be different from darkness to be noticed. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom that has a very different king to the kingdom of the world. And the king sets the tone and the atmosphere of the whole kingdom. That means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it means to live by a completely different set of values to those around us who aren't in that kingdom. I think this is probably why one of the uh, typical characteristics of membership of the kingdom of God through the ages, as Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount, is that we get persecuted. We live in a world that on the whole is not righteous. Now, of course, good things happen in the world, very good things. And there are many people who, by many different standards, could be considered good. But the Bible is clear. The world as a whole is not good. It is not righteous. Yet what's our calling? What did Jesus tell us in the Beatitudes? We're called to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as you hunger and thirst for righteousness in a world that is not righteous, well, Jesus tells us what, was, what will happen. You are persecuted because of that righteousness. But of course, no one's a big fan of persecution. So we do the best we can usually to kind of avoid it or shrink back from persecution and find any way not to get persecuted. And one way to do that could be to try to drop this distinctiveness, to sort of turn down the contrast and the things that go against the grain. Jesus in this passage is at pains to tell us to not do this, to warn us in the strongest possible terms against this course of action. He's, he's saying to us, he's saying, look, guys, seriously, you're salt. The whole point of salt is to be noticeable and distinct. If you choose to get rid of the things that make you distinctive, you will not just lose your worth to society, you will lose your very identity, who you are. Unsalty salt is good for nothing. It is worthless. We must maintain our distinctiveness. But you might think, yeah, okay, distinctiveness, but I still don't want to get persecuted. Is there another way out? Well, maybe there is. Maybe we could maintain our distinctiveness and keep living according to the values of the kingdom, these very different confrontational, provocative values. But we could do it in a way that nobody could see. 
brilliant. We're in stealth mode. No one will notice what we're doing, but we're still ticking the box of distinctiveness, so we get out of persecution. Great idea. Not a great idea. Jesus makes that really clear with the next image he uses, the light image. Because see, light is certainly distinctive, but it has another quality. It is visible, necessarily visible. So the third point, as followers of Jesus, we're not just called to be distinctive, we are also called, called to be visible. Just as it's ridiculous to think of salt losing its saltiness, it's perhaps even more ridiculous of someone trying to hide a city. That'd be pretty, pretty silly. But maybe even more so, someone lighting a lamp only to put a basket or a bowl over the top of it. That is meant to be a ridiculous image. If you're saying now, that's ridiculous, who, who would do that? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus would say, exactly, that's my point. And just as that's ridiculous, that's how strange it would be for my followers to hide themselves away from the world that they are called to serve. Now, let's imagine in a parallel dimension at this point, um, where there is no coronavirus, this sermon would take a very particular route. And I would probably veer towards talking about how we could be on a stand, what that would mean for us. And I'd encourage us, I imagine, to uh, welcome people from outside the church into our lives and get involved in their lives and go to work parties and not just to be uh, hanging around with other Christians and stuff like that. You've probably heard me speak on that a number of times. So you've been saved from that today because let's return to our present dimension and we see the problem I mentioned right at the beginning. That's going to be tricky. Well, it's kind of tricky. For some of us, it would be impossible not to follow that instruction. For others, it's impossible to follow that instruction. So if you're here and you, you work uh, for the health service or other key jobs, uh, it doesn't matter what you feel about Jesus' instruction to be out there and shine and be public. Well, you're going to have to. You're being brought into work more hours uh, than you can probably count on your fingers. And you're there. Like, whether you want to obey it or not, you have to be out there on a stand. And uh, we're really praying for you in that situation. And we're really praying that God's with you and that you shine there. But it's an, an instruction becomes slightly redundant if you can't not follow it. But for most of us, the opposite is the case. We find ourselves under circumstances where... Actually, we, we can't go out, even if we wanted to. The government have told us, you know what, you've got to stay at home. It might be ridiculous to think of lighting a lamp and then putting a bowl on top of it, but it's like someone else has put the bowl on top of us for us. And to kick against that is definitely not the application of this talk. That would be socially completely irresponsible. Now, how then do we apply this in such exceptional times then? Well, to see this, I think we've got to take another step back and we've got to look at something that's not in the detail, but it's in the bigger picture of this passage. And it's kind of obvious, but it's easily missed. Jesus' teaching here is not focused really on what we do, but on the people that we are. Jesus' teaching here is not focused on what we do, but on the people that we are. You notice that? We are salt. We are light. And yes, he mentions what we do. He mentions good deeds. Let your good deeds shine out before others. But the point seems to be, well, look, that's what lights do. Obviously, that's what you are. 
he makes a very similar point just a couple of chapters forward that we'll come to later in this series in uh, Matthew chapter 7 verses 17 to 18 where he uses a slightly different analogy this is what he says a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit a good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit Jesus consistently taught that what a person does springs from who they are. And the important thing, the most important thing, is to be the right kind of person. If you're a good tree, you will bear good fruit. If you are salt, you will act in salty ways. If you are light, you will act in light-giving ways. But on the other hand, if you're a bad tree, you might try as you might to act in all sorts of different ways and put on a good show, but ultimately your fruit, your actions, your influence will in the long term at the very least be seen to be negative. Now, I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of you right now were thinking, sounds a, sounds a little bit picky. Are you just playing with words? Surely a good person is just someone who does good things, aren't they? Well, actually, no, it's a little different to that, I think. And although we're near the end of the talk, I think I can both explain that and apply this quite quickly to us. I don't think a good person is just someone who does good things. It's about the way they do those good things. A good person does good things naturally, almost instinctively. And I want you to imagine for me a kind person. Just think in your head, it might be a person you know, uh, might be a, uh, an imaginary perfect kind person. Now, I imagine the kind person you're thinking of, if they came to a situation that demanded some level of empathy, I imagine they wouldn't have a real conundrum on their hands. I imagine they wouldn't go, oh, for goodness sake, I really can't be bothered. I feel no empathy for you whatsoever. But you know what? Let's put on the smile and say the kind thing or do the kind thing. That wouldn't be a kind person, though they might do something kind. No, a kind person acts kind spontaneously, or at least they seem to. Think of an honest person. An honest person doesn't actually have to struggle hugely every time they speak to tell the truth. In fact, the opposite would be true. It's actually quite difficult for an honest person to lie because it will be so out of character for them. And there's the key word here that I think we should focus on. Character. By talking about salt and light and trees, rather than telling us what to do, Jesus is focusing not on our individual actions, but on our characters. Now, it is true that for many of us, this is a time when we can't shine out our good deeds to people very much. But that doesn't mean we can't apply this passage in this time. Far from it. You see, this is a time when we can definitely build our characters. And in some ways, it might be a unique and special time for us to do that. Now, the topic of Christian views about character formation is huge and we're almost out of time. But I think I do have time to give you a couple of pointers on this and three very specific and brief application points on this one. So how, as Christians then, should we think about character formation? How can we make sure we are who Jesus says we are in this passage? Well, the first thing we've got to note, I think, about this is this is more about God's work than our work. This is more about God's work than our work. This is not just a matter of us trying really hard, pulling our socks up and being really disciplined. 
Now think of the scenario Jesus was in when he spoke this. Jesus had not gone around for the preceding months spying on people and finding out who were the really good eggs out there. And he didn't then send a private message to all the really good eggs and say, hey, guys, meet me on the mountain in a couple of days and then gather them all together and go, look, everyone, I've got the evidence. I've seen how you live. You guys are salt and you guys are light and you're a really good tree. That is not how the Sermon on the Mount, Mount worked. That's not how Jesus operated. In fact, we find as the gospel goes on that Jesus does exactly the opposite to that. His first followers were tax collectors, were prostitutes and were known sinners. They would be the people that most people would assume were the least noble, least virtuous and least righteous on their own. Now, Jesus didn't say, come to me if you're good trees and let's join the good tree gang. He said, come to me even though you're not salt and light and good trees, and I will change you. That was Jesus' message. Say one of the images he used, we are only lights because of his light. In many ways, we really have no light of our own. It is a reflected light. It's a bit like the, the sun and the moon. Uh, in the sky, at different points of the day, the sun and the moon would both be lights, wouldn't they? Um, Yet they're very different types of light. The moon has no light of its own. It, it reflects the sun's light to us. And if the moon uh, hides behind the earth and falls in the shadow of the earth and is cut off from the sun, what happens? Well, you get a lunar eclipse and sometimes you can't even see the moon at all. I think that's how it works here. We are light as much as we are connected to the light. We are salt as long as we are drawing from the most wise and distinctive human being who's ever lived. So how then practically can we work on being salt and light? Firstly, follow the light. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian here, the main thing I'd want you to come away from this talk with, and I think the main thing Jesus would have told you if you'd met him all those years ago, would be follow me. That's what Jesus said to people in the Gospels. If you read them, follow me. There's many reasons why following Jesus, I think, is a great idea. But one is, if you want to be a light, if you want to be salt, if you want to be changed so much that you naturally, over time, produce good fruit, do good for others, long-lasting fruit, long-lasting influence to you, to your family, to your friends, and even wider, well, there's an invitation to come to the true light so you can reflect his light. First thing, follow the light. And if you're not a Christian, you're interested in that, talk to your Christian friends. Uh, otherwise, just contact us at Church Central, uh, office at churchcentral.org.uk, and uh, we'd love to talk to you about how to do that. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. For those of you who are already Christians, centre your life around the light, especially at this time. What does that mean practically? I think we can be very practical on this one. It means, I think, spending time with the light in your daily routine. Put aside time to read his word, the Bible. Put aside time to pray. Keep remembering and trying your hardest to connect in with his people, even though there are challenges at this time. When you get a moment in your day uh, where you have a, a moment to think, where there's nothing else going on, jump to Jesus. Worship him. Thank him. 
through prayers of praise or, or to him, meditate on his word. When a problem arises in your day, yeah, of course, think through the problem. God's given you a reason, but also bring him in on the process. Call on Jesus, the light quickly. Say, light, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Express your dependency on him at all times. Which leads us on to our final point. And it's the flip side of what I've just said. Yes, we definitely must realise that becoming a good tree or salt or light is more about God's work than our work. But the last thing I want to say is there are still things that we can do. In fact, maybe I could say there are still things that we must do. So often we see these sort of things as these either or things. We ask, well, God, how do I become salt and light? Is it you that does it or is it me that does it? And so we hear, well, this is mainly about the work of God in us. So we think, great. Well, if it's the work of God in us, that means I have nothing to do at all. It's all on God. And you sit there looking at your clock and think, why have I not become salt yet? Why am I not light? Why am I not seeing everyone around me fall to their knees and worship God? No, this is not an either or thing. This is a, a both and thing. When the, the Bible talks about how to build good character, it doesn't talk in those kind of very black and white binary terms. No, how we build character is both God's work and primarily God's work, but it also involves our work too. Listen to what Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 16. I'll read it to you. Don't you realise that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. It might sound like a particularly harsh image to compare us to slaves, but I think we would understand this sort of language if applied to certain types of behaviour. So, for example, if I was to say, don't you realise you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to heroin, for example. You'd probably agree. Or you can be a slave to nicotine or alcohol or gambling or pornography. I think we'd understand that some some behaviour has a sort of addictive power. The more you do those things, the more they become second nature, the more you build habits of doing those things. And if you're not careful, before long, they begin to define who you are. And in that sense, you become a slave. Well, Paul's point is simply this. He would say it's not just those specific actions that work like this. It's all actions. And actually not just bad actions, but also good actions as well. So often in the modern world, we like to think of ourselves as these wonderfully free individuals. And it's like when we come to a decision, uh, we think of ourselves as basically we could do anything at that point. We'll just use our reason and our good nature. And so we can always come to the best conclusion at any time. We think of those acts isolated from each other like that. But basically, anyone who's studied any subject in any depth will know this is a completely false view of human beings. In psychology, in the sciences, in philosophy, it's very, very clearly understood that, that our, our actions today are largely dependent and controlled by our actions yesterday. And those ones are controlled by what we chose to do the day before. In a sense, we are creatures of habit who are controlled by our past decisions. Yes, I know that as Christians, we believe that Jesus can free us from this control. He can step in with his grace and break the circuit. But 
the principle still holds. And you see, that's important to know because the principle can be applied the other way too, as I've said, to, to good things that we do. The more you do good things, salty things, light things, the more they become second nature to you, the more they become habits and the more they define who you are. Being salt and light is about leaning hard on the grace and transforming power of God, for sure. But as we do that, we find that in his grace, he encourages us to play our part and to be diligent in developing good habits in our own lives. So my last application point is this. Use this time as an opportunity to build good character so you're ready for the challenges that lie ahead of you. Yes, this time may not offer you many opportunities to shine out your good deeds before others. But you know what? This time is probably a unique opportunity to build your character according to God's wisdom. Some of us are very busy. Some of us are not very busy. Others of us, of course, are in the middle. But what we all share at the moment is over the last month or so, we have gone through huge change. And where there's change, there's opportunity to do things differently to how you did them before, almost to reset our whole lifestyles. My encouragement to you would be to use this opportunity to foster good habits that will lead to good character so that when we're all able to get out on a stand again, we can shine. And when we are scattered out again into our communities and our neighbourhoods and our workplaces, we can be very, very salty. Remember, Jesus' call is not an easy one. He's calling us to a course of action that will necessarily lead to opposition and persecution, to mockery and to insults. When we return back into the world, those things will return too, and they won't be any easier to deal with. What we need to do is prepare ourselves now. Draw close to Jesus, the light, now. Reorganise your priorities and your lifestyle now. Do not waste this time just hibernating. Because whatever the media tells you, you are not worthless. And whatever those around tell you, you are not irrelevant. We as Christians, are vital to the well-being of our society and our communities. And we're going to be vital to the rebuilding of our whole culture if it's going to go in a good direction. The only question is this. Will we be ready to play that vital role we are called to do when we are called to do it? Now's the time of preparation to be the people that God has made us to be. Please, let's not waste it.